If Christ has not been raised, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still stuck in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still stuck in your sins. Would you please pray with me? May the words in my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. I'm worried. I'm worried about the future of our church. And I don't mean just here at Cokesbury. I'm really worried about the United Methodist Church. Because we've been debating, as I said before, for decades and decades about the inclusion or the exclusion of gay individuals from the church. And in a week, representatives from the entire denomination across the world are going to meet in St. Louis to discern and decide the fate of this church. At the heart of the matter is our church's doctrine that says the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. Some want that language to remain. Others want it to go. I'm worried. I'm worried because I really don't know what's going to happen next week. But I figure here on this Sunday before it happens, I might as well share with all of you what I think and how I feel. Because any accurate reading of the Bible should make it abundantly clear that homosexuality goes against the plain truth of the word of God. As one preacher warns, in overstepping the boundary lines God has drawn by making special rights for gays and lesbians, we have taken steps in the direction of inviting the judgment of God upon our land. This step toward gay rights in the church that some are arguing for, it is but another stepping tone toward the immorality and the lawlessness that will be characteristic of the last days. Any attempts to change our church doctrine, it represents a denial of everything we believe in. And no one should ever force something like that upon us. It's not that we don't care about homosexuals. It's that our rights are about to be taken away. Unchristian views will be forced upon us and our children. will be forced to go against our personal morals. There are people out there who are endeavoring to disturb God's established order. It is not in line with the Bible. Do not let people lead you astray. Those leading a movement toward changing, they don't believe the Bible anymore. Every good, every intelligent, every orthodox Christian can read the word of God and know what is happening right now is not of God. Because when you run into conflict with God's established order, you're going to get trouble. You will not produce harmony. You produce destruction and devastation. Friends, this is the greatest danger that has ever been facing the church in history. We've gotten away from the Bible. The right of segregation... Sorry. Hold on, let me find my spot. The right of segregation is clearly established by the Holy Scriptures, both by precept and example. I'm, I'm really sorry. I seem to have brought the wrong sermon with me today. In fact, I borrowed my argument from the wrong century. Everything I just read to you, it came from white preachers from the 50s and 60s. It came from white preachers in the 50s and 60s who were in support of racial segregation. All I've done is taken out the words racial integration and I substituted it with phrases about homosexuals in the church. 
I guess some of the arguments I've been hearing from people these days sounded so similar that I got them confused. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still stuck in your sins. Paul was worried about his comrades in faith in Corinth. He was worried about them. Worried like I'm worried. And that's what the whole letter has been about. They were apparently drifting away from the path of truth and life. And he, Paul, throughout his words, is attempting to steer those in their faith back to the way that is Jesus Christ. He caught wind that they were no longer having the Eucharist together. And he writes about how the body of Christ has many members and you cannot separate them. He learned that some were engaging in internal competitions about who was the best. And he said, Christ alone is the head of the body of the church. And now toward the end, he gets to the real heart of the matter. Questions about the resurrection of the dead. Paul is screaming through the letter throughout time. This is it. This is it. It's this or nothing. Everything depends on whether this is true or not. As I said last week for Paul, Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ rose again. That's the story. It's the story that captivated much of the Mediterranean world in the decades after Jesus' life and death and resurrection. It is still the story that is catching hold of new Christians this day and every day. It is a profound announcement about something that has already happened. It's not a collection of generic religious principles and laws. It's not a list of things you're supposed to do. The very heart of the gospel is the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This passage, the one that was read for us this morning, is well known. It's often quoted by Christian types. And it has a finality and a punch to it that can come across as rather frightening. Paul puts it like this. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then we are all fools. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, then we are all fools. The power of Paul's words and wisdom is often overlooked in the church today. We're far more captivated by the likes of Noah and his ark and David fighting with Goliath than we are with a first century man who made it his life's work to spread the gospel. The great heroes of the Bible are always more interesting and more fun than reading a letter about theology. And yet we forget that what Paul wrote was written down before any of the gospels were written down. We forget that without Paul's witness and prayers and ministry, Christianity, it would have stayed among the Jews and it never would have been extended to us, the Gentiles. We forget that Paul is the one who handed on to us what was of first importance. And for him, he says, this is of the utmost. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then the entire foundation of our faith has been destroyed. Christian preaching becomes nothing more than endless delusions that, often, that offer lies and empty gestures. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then we mock ourselves with falsehoods and expect people to live in a new world order that doesn't really exist. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then all we can offer the world is a pious lie that veils people from the truth that we are powerless and that we are alone. But there is no such thing as if in the lexicon of God. There is no such thing as if. Death has been defeated in the death of Jesus Christ. This is not something we want to be true. It is not something we need to be true. It's not even something we imagine to be true because it is far beyond what we could want or need or imagine. It is simply the truth. Jesus was raised from the dead. Everything hangs on that. One of the most important aspects of our faith is that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is not contingent on whether we believe it or not. Even in the days of our deepest, deepest doubts, Jesus is still alive. 
what we do, what we stand for, what we preach, what we proclaim is only intelligible because Christ was raised from the dead. Otherwise, it is downright foolish to teach children to turn the other cheek if the resurrection isn't real. It is absurd to give money to the church unless the resurrection is real. It is truly irresponsible to love for and pray for our enemies if the resurrection isn't real. And yet the church, and to be specific, the United Methodist Church is drawing near to the edge of a cliff all over the definition of what is or was what is not compatible with Christian teaching. I'll be the first to admit that Paul mentions a lot of sins in his letters, aspects of living that draw us away from God Almighty. Some of those sins, they include not caring for the poor, not caring for the foreigners in our midst. Some of those, some of those sins are about letting women speak in church. Pam, wherever you are, I'm really sorry. That's okay. You broke God's law. I'm sorry. Some of them are about how we engage with others, even when it comes to what we do in our bedroom. But here in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul talks about the most important aspect of our faith, the only sins he mentions are the sins for which Christ has already died. All of them. To me, it is absolutely crazy that our church has the potential of going up or down in flames in the next two weeks all over an argument about what does or does not count as a sin when every one of our sins has already been nailed to the cross with Jesus. Paul says, if Jesus Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then we are still in our sins. Which is another way of saying that because Christ has been raised from the grave, we are no longer in our sins. Paul is quick to claim again and again that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's nothing we can do that will negate what Christ has already done. But we, we'd rather spend our time arguing about who's in, who isn't. We want to know where the line is drawn so we can know for sure that we're on the right side and that they are on the wrong side. We've done it before. Slavery. Segregation. Women's subordination. Hell, we did it over whether we could have bathrooms in a church. All theological positions about what was or wasn't sinful that people fought tooth and nail over. And we're doing it right now about homosexuality. And the worst thing of all is this is not the last fight the church will have. Whether we're progressive or we're traditional, whether we lean one way or the other, according to Paul, it doesn't matter how we interpret the Bible. It doesn't matter with whom we share our bed or what we do in it. None of it changes the fact that Christ died and rose for us. It doesn't give us the freedom to go and do whatever we want, but it sure does free us from the self-righteous judgments we make against people with whom we disagree. Amen. God's grace is an unmerited gift. It is not dependent on our belief. It is not dependent on our piety. It is not dependent on our morality. God died for us regardless. But we live in a world of the law. We so desperately want to know what is right and what is wrong because we want to know that we're right and that we can lord it over those who are wrong. In the end, though, the only thing the law shows us is that we fail to be obedient. But friends, the law isn't the end. What did Jesus say? I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Because that's the story we tell. God so loved the world 
that God got down out of his throne, condescended to our miserable existence to rescue us from ourselves through the blood of his son. God so loved the world. He broke forth from the tomb and free from the chains of death so that we would never have death be the final word. God so loved the world that God died and lived again so that we would no longer be defined by our sins. There is no such thing as if in the kingdom of God. The law will never do more than condemn us in our sins until that incredible and truly transformative moment while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Grace shows up in Jesus, liberates us from every single sin without a single condition attached. The gospel is not about if we do something or not. The gospel is not about if we love someone or not. The gospel is not about if people are compatible or not. The gospel is the extravagant and outrageous and the even absurd gift of grace and love and resurrection. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. Amen. Amen. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Thank you, Thank you for that message. Uh, dear clergy friend of mine, uh, who's been a pastor for 35 years, has ended every single service on Sunday with the exact same benediction. You know that moment where I stand here and acolytes here and I raise my hand up? This pastor said the same thing for 35 years in a row. God loves you, and there ain't nothing you can do about it. That's right. <laughs> Friends, that is the gospel. God loves you, and there ain't nothing you can do about it. If that's not good news, I don't know what is.